Good evening, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE's Management Public Series. My name is Dr. Lourdes Sosa, and I'm here to chair our session um, with the management department. I'm an associate professor in the department um, at LSE. We are delighted to have Eric Ries, entrepreneur and author, to join us for the third time. We are absolutely fortunate that he is a continuous presence in our community and we thank him for this opportunity again. For many of you, he needs no introduction. You know the best-selling book. I brought my props. <laughs> the Lean Startup has sold more than a million copies worldwide, and more importantly, has given advice to many individuals and companies, organizations of different types and um, sizes for how to go ahead with their performance. That said, six years ago, Eric found himself finishing this book and moving on to advise startups, and indeed he found himself working with larger organizations as well, and at some point he turned to think, this can actually be a larger method. This can actually be the startup way. So that's the transition we are discussing today. I'm sure he will give us an explanation of the concept, the methodology, a few examples of what the startup way looks like in reality. Before we start, I need to give you all a few pointers, a point on the format. This is a collective conversation. We all want to talk to Eric and find out what his view is on management and entrepreneurship. And so I'm going to start us up with a few questions for the first 30 minutes so that Eric can um, put the foundation to our conversation, and then we will turn it to you to see what your challenges are, what your comments and questions are for Eric to discuss. If you decide to take this conversation online, just a reminder that on Twitter, our hashtag is LSE Startup. That way we can all follow one another and make this actually a conversation. Lastly, um, can I just ask everyone to please mind your phones being on silent? The only way to make this a conversation and follow LSE's pursuit for learning is to let everyone have equal access to the information, and we can only do that if everyone around us can hear equally well. With that, I'm going to open the evening. Please join me to welcome Mary Grace to the LSE. Thank you all so much. This is uh, it's an honor to be back at LSE, so thank you for, for hosting me once again. Thank you. Um, I'm going to start us from the very beginning. We want to know how your line of inquiry started, right? Huh? So sure. <laughs> you went into the Lean Startup, Lean Manufacturing, Lean Innovation, and then at some moment you found out the insight that this could be a larger method for every organization. Sure. How did that transition come about? I wish I could say it was my master plan all along and that I knew what was going to happen. I'm really as surprised as anybody. First of all, I can't even explain. When I, when I wrote The Lean Startup, that was 2010, you know, 2011 the book was published. I had some inkling that it was going to be something big because the, the, the Lean Startup movement had been bubbling already for a few years at that point and the creation of all these meetup groups and, and these global connections. So, so I knew that it was going to be exciting for entrepreneurs. But I didn't have any, I, I, nothing could possibly have prepared me for what happened next. 
in the book, I had tried to put the practice of entrepreneurship on a more rigorous footing. It, it drove me crazy that so much of the way we talk about entrepreneurship is based on like something we read in a movie or you know a business school case study where so and so was looking out their window profoundly as they contemplated a business dilemma of whether or not you know they should ride their bike into the town and sell their company or whatever. It's just you know it's very narrative driven. The first time I had a Harvard Business School. Uh, you know, style case study written about one of my companies, the case writer said to me at a certain point, I said, well, we had to make a strategic choice between this or that. And they said, yes, but do you mind if we change it a little bit to make it more difficult for the students? Because it's kind of, it seems a little too obvious what you should have done. And I was like, no, you can't do that. That's <laughs> what you're talking about. That's not what really happened. They're like, well, but this is for the students' sake to make it more interesting. I said, well, you're going to lie to the students to, for as part of their education? Uh, yeah. So I was like, well, wait a minute. And then I was, I was like, how many other case studies have I read that are fictionalized? I was like, well, we always like to light. And I was like, they're all fictionalized? <laughs> I understand the movie is fictional. You know, like, I'm not going to learn my, you know, my, my entrepreneurial lessons from Ghostbusters, although quite a few people have. Uh, but you know, I, just, I couldn't believe it. So, so I was like, we've got to be more rigorous in our application. There's no way we're going to get better at entrepreneurship if we can't define our terms and try to give it some kind of intellectual foundation. So, I had started with this definition of what is a startup. Uh, everyone remembers a human institution designed to create something new under conditions of extreme uncertainty. So that seemed to me like a very simple way to begin. What is it that makes you an entrepreneur? Not what it says on your business card, but rather the business context in which you operate. And since uh, it's always about institution building, then it's always about management. That seemed very obvious to me. So therefore, we should talk about the discipline of entrepreneurial management, and we should start to make that more rigorous, and we could get better about it. And I, always, and I added almost as an afterthought, it's funny about that definition. It doesn't say anything about the size of company or sector of the economy or industry that you're in. It just says that you face extreme uncertainty. You don't know what's going to work in the future. And anyway, then I went on and, and gave the rest of my theory. And from the very first day the book came out, I mean, literally, this started happening to me at the book launch party in New York City, like the day the book was published. People started coming up to me and said, hi, I'm a general manager at the division of a big company, tasked with bringing my company into the future, and I accept your challenge. And I was like, I'm sorry, what challenge? I said, well, you said this can work in my company. I said, terrific. Good luck for you. Good luck with that. I, I hope that's true. You know, uh, best of luck. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. I would like you to come help us with that. And the first time I, that someone said that to me, I said, I think you've, you've come to the wrong, the wrong aisle of the store. You know, I, that's not really my department. You need you know, somebody who knows about uh, corporate politics and, and divisional budgeting and you know, matrix management and, and whatever else. And they said, you know, not listening to me. I already told you I'm a, I'm a general manager who runs a division of a big company, I have politics well covered. That's not my problem. My problem is my, my disruptive team that I've built according to the rules of disruptive innovation, a separate building with its own independent budget authority, and where we have the beanbag chairs and the exposed brick office and all the things you need to innovate. And uh, <laughs> what exactly is my team supposed to do every day? That's my only my one little question. It doesn't seem to say in any of these books, what are they actually supposed to do? So my team is coming into the office, and we are operating our same old business method of waterfall-style development. And I'm starting to wonder. No one ever comes to me at the beginning of this process. They've already built the lab and spent quite a bit of money, of course, by the time they think to reach out to me. I'm starting to wonder if we are ever going to get any of the results that I promised the CEO when I set up this lab. And can you help us with that? And I had to kind of be pushed 
and pulled by much more visionary managers than I to go take a look at that problem. And I don't think I would have taken it very seriously if not for the fact that at the very same time that was happening to me and I was being asked to consult to GE and Toyota and these big iconic companies, also many of the startups that were early adopters of Lean Startup, uh, way back when it first started bubbling up, when I met them they were four or five founders in a garage and all of a sudden they, they have success. They hit product market fit, and now they have 500, 1,000, 5,000 employees. And I started to get these phone calls. Hey, I remember when you were first talking about Lean Startup, you said something, something, management, something. But I wasn't paying very close attention to that part. I was just focused on MVPs and pivots and, you know, build, measure, learn, and the exciting bumper sticker parts of Lean Startup. What was the management thing again? And I was like, well, why do you ask? And they're like, I don't think we're doing a very good job of managing our company now that we're so big, and, I, and a few of them over drinks you know, in the evening would confide in me, I'm not even sure I could get a job at this company <laughs> if I wasn't the founder CEO. And I'm not sure I would want to work here. I mean, being the founder CEO is a great gig, don't get me wrong, but would I want to be a regular product manager here, stifled by all these, where do these rules come from in this bureaucracy? And, and we forget, everyone talks about entrepreneurship like it's about small business. But that's a terrible misconception. Only the failed startups are small businesses. And I always tease my founder friends, if you hate big business so much, because why did you become a startup? You would, I don't want to work in the bureaucratic, political, blah, blah, blah. If you hate big companies so much, why are you trying to create a new one? And everyone says, well, my company won't be like that. We're going to grow up and be dynamic and a perpetual startup. And I'm like, OK, but what, by what mechanism? What's the plan? And they're like, well, we're going to hire only the very best people. And said, but everyone says that. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to make sure we have a culture of innovation, but how? What, are you going to put up posters that say everyone have a culture of innovation? Like, what's, what's the mechanism? You're just going to use the power of your mind to manifest this innovation? Like, what's the plan? And so what happens is, with no plan, you go through product market fit. The seeds that you planted early on in the structure of your company you know, grow rapidly to become this institution that's not what you imagined it would be. And so I was having this very strange double life. This has been my life the last five or six years. Sometimes on the very same day, in the morning, I'm with the CEO of a massive multinational company. In the afternoon, you know, I'm with the CEO of a unicorn Silicon Valley hot startup. And the weird part was we were having the same conversation over and over again. And it struck me as very strange. How can a company 120 years old have the same issues as a company five years old? That should, like all of our intuition and instinct says those things should be diametrically opposed and totally different. And you know, if someone's wearing a hoodie and someone else is wearing a, a, a suit and one eats ramen noodles and the other you know, it has, it has good health care benefits and one has the exposed brick and the other is in a like, they should be really different. And yet, I'm, I was like, I'm just had this, I just had this conversation this morning, but with somebody whose company has you know, 100 times more employees than yours. And eventually, I realized that both companies are built to the same blueprint. If you x-ray the org chart of the hottest unicorn startup that you know, is about to go public, and you compare it to the org chart of your favorite big multinational matrix managed company, they're the same. They have the same departments, the same siloed department. The way that work is passed between departments is the same. The way we budget and allocate resources is the same. And it's, not only is it the same with each other, it's basically the same structure we've been using for almost 100 years. If you reincarnated the ghost of Alfred Sloan, who pioneered this structure for General Motors in the 1920s, he would say, oh yeah, that. And he would have no idea what the product the company makes is. Like it's a software what? Internet who? 
It's a, you make selfie sticks, what's a selfie? Like he wouldn't know anything about what the product is, but you show him the org chart and he'd be like, good job, glad you're still using it. And that just struck me as strange. Well, that's odd. Why is it that founders who have a company only five years old who could have done anything they wanted, why did they recapitulate this exact same structure? And I realized that when, when you look in, if you could look in their brain in the, in the box that says, what is a company? What does it look like? They have this very specific blueprint in mind. That's all we know. We build companies a very specific way, and we're quite consistent about it. I don't want to denigrate that management structure. It's quite good for what it was designed to do. But can anyone think of any ways in which the world of 2017 is different from the world of 1920? Anybody? You know, I, can, I can think of a few. I don't think it's that big of a stretch to say maybe, maybe, maybe we could improve on that structure a little bit. And that's the, that's the line of inquiry, as you say, that, that led me ultimately to write the book, to say we need a new management theory that is designed to take into account the realities of the 21st century. And I didn't want to write just another manifesto. Anyone else sick and tired of business manifestos? For God's sake, everyone, you should change. It's important to innovate or whatever. Uh, if you just do what I did, then you'll get rich too. Like, I think we could do better than that as a genre. I think we'd do better than that as a practice. So I wanted to figure out, could we, could we actually build um, like a very practical knowledge base about how this is done? And so this is my attempt to, to do that. Fantastic. And so in these, so you're now in the transition, whether it is because the community took you to Yeah, yeah, terms, exactly. That was, so definitely that was you, not my idea. <laughs> whether you were walking into them um, yourself. Now you have a particular systematic method that you want to propose. Can you give us an example? What does the startup way look like in a company? Any company that you would want to... Sure. So the challenge with working with corporates is that everything you say has to be cleared by corporate communications. <laughs> so, you know, it, and, and because Lean Startup involves a lot of failure, a lot of companies that do this really don't want to talk about it. It's not, it's not brand aligned for them, they think. So I've been very lucky that a few companies have given me permission to kind of really tell the true story of what happened behind the scenes, including GE and, uh, and Intuit, especially uh, in this book. So... Let me talk a little bit about GE, because I think that's a, kind of a, a, that's a company that people know. You understand the products that they make, and you can imagine the challenges that they have when it comes time to do innovation. So the way it began, I uh, was asked to come in and present to the CEO and top officers of GE a few years ago uh, at their Crotonville facility in upstate New York. It's a legendary leadership development center. Uh, if you've ever seen that episode of 30 Rock where they go to Crotonville, Whoever wrote that episode has definitely been there. <laughs> so just like that, except not as funny. And they asked me to come into a presentation about Lean Startup, which I did. It went, went fine. And then they asked me to do a prototype project with them. They said, the, the CEO himself said, I get to choose. We're gonna, if we're going to experiment with this new way of working, I get to pick the initial project. And it's not going to be some software thing. Okay? I'm, just, I'm a software guy. Okay? I come from Silicon Valley. I grew up programming computers. He's like, I'm not going to do some app. Okay? We're going to do a workshop with a diesel reciprocating platform. I said, excellent, no problem. I just have one question. What is a diesel reciprocating platform? <laughs> I had no idea even what that was. It says, so just if you don't know what that is either, uh, this is a diesel engine, a uh, brand new product they were planning to build to enter into a brand new market space that they had not been in before, a diesel engine that could be used for fracking, for what's called marine electric, uh, making boats go. Uh, it could be used in stationary drilling. It could be used in locomotive. I was like, okay, you're telling me by land, at sea, on a boat, on a plane, in a train. <laughs> like, what? You know, I'm just trying to figure out what the heck this thing is. Uh, just to give you a sense of the scale of this program, uh, they were planning to invest approximately $300 million, 
which at GE makes it a medium-sized program. That's not, they don't even really consider that a lot of money. Uh, it was going to take five years to build, followed by a global launch, which is going to be this huge new line of business uh, for them. And I was supposed to do a workshop with this team to see what would happen if we could apply Lean Startup Ideas to this problem domain. So can you imagine this setup for a second? Here's what the workshop looked like. We were in a tiered business school classroom seating, a little bit more fancy than this, but the same basic idea. Right here, sitting down in front row, are three or four people from this, it was called the Series X product team. They've been summoned up from Texas to be in this workshop in Crotonville. And then in the back of the room, we have dozens and dozens of corporate vice presidents. They're here just to observe <laughs> the workshop. This is not the greatest day of this poor team's life, as you can imagine. This is not optimal setup for a workshop by any means. So I, you know, did my best to be helpful. And, and you know, the running joke at GE for all the years that I was working with them, they always say, well, listen, nobody wants to have a minimum viable engine. Okay, so there's just a, uh, these things explode, you don't understand, you can't just, you know, do one-tenth of it again with an app, and you can't change it 50 times a day. So there was a huge amount of skepticism that this is going to work. And I always try to approach these things with some humility. Say, listen, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but let's, let me ask some questions and see if I can understand. First of all, what is the currently approved plan? So first of all, someone teach me how you make an engine. How does it work? And the team gave a presentation with slides, you know, on the stage. Here is the currently approved business plan for this new product. Here are the five use cases it's going to be used in, and here's why this is a great business. And here's and then they're going on and on and on and on. Here are all the technical assumptions that have to be true for this to work. We've got to make sure we get the efficiency target to be X, Y, Z. We've got to invent a whole new division of material science, and we have to solve this technical problem and that technical problem. We have to solve the weight issue. We have to solve the transportability issue. All these issues have to be solved, okay? And you can imagine for something that's going to be used on a boat, by land, by sea, you know, on a train, it's going to be complicated. The engineering challenge is going to be quite difficult to make one engine that can work in all these different places. And then they presented a graph I will never forget as long as I live. This is a bar chart. I want you to visualize this bar chart. Revenue forecast by year for the next 30 years <laughs> for a Series X engine. And we have a big screen like this. The first five bars are blank. There's no bars, of course, during the five years of stealth R&D in which there'll be no customers, naturally. Followed by 25 bars that start off quite low and have a very distinctive shape. You may be familiar with the hockey stick shape. So it starts you know, low, 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 and then right towards the end, boy, do these bars get very high. And I thought to myself, I don't know what a diesel reciprocating platform is, but my friends, I am very familiar with this graph. Did I mention I'm from Silicon Valley? This is one of our leading exports, the, the hockey stick-shaped fantasy plan. Why don't you step into my office and let's discuss? And of course, I started by asking the assembled luminaries, everybody, please raise your hand if you believe this forecast. I am not making this up. Every hand went up. And they were kind of pissed off. Like, kid, how could you even suggest that we would make a $300 million investment without the brightest minds of the GE Corporation vetting thoroughly this plan to know that, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I meant no disrespect, but seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Who in this room actually can tell me with a straight face that you believe in the year 2035, you're going to make exactly $2.8 billion, you know, whatever nonsense number was up there. And when you put it that way, it's like, ah, well... You know, um, just stretching, you know. <laughs> of course, we don't really know what's going to happen in the energy extraction industry. We can't even predict the price of natural gas in six months, let alone 
in 30 years? This is a ridiculous exercise. So we started to have a real conversation about what do we know for sure and what are our guesses, or maybe in a more fancy language, what are our hypotheses about what has to be true for this to work. For example, we had been speaking only about the technical risk, but I remember asking, how do people buy a diesel reciprocating platform? Like, I understand you don't order it on Amazon, <laughs> but what, and they're like, oh, well, you have to have an extensive dealership network for service and support and sales. And I'm like, ah, just like Monty Python. Uh, do we already got one of those? <laughs> you know, right? Uh, no, we don't. Okay, well, do we know how to build one? No. Uh, is there a plan for how to go about building such a thing? Is there a playbook that you did? And they're like, no, we'll figure it out later. Well, when, you know, this is like in, in Appendix B, footnote four of the business plan is like, oh, and also be sure to build a worldwide distribution sales and support network to go up against an entrenched competitor that already has one. It's like, uh, that strikes me as potentially a leap of faith assumption. So when are we going to start testing that assumption to find out if it's true? Obviously, after the five years of R&D is done. Like, well, if that assumption is not true, when would you like to find that out? $300 million in or maybe right now? And are you sure that customers want to buy this product in all these different segments? And are you sure that you have the right price point and the right business model? And they're like, well, don't worry. We spent a lot of time gathering the requirements. I was like, oh, you harvest them off a tree? Like, where? I love the phrase, gathering requirements. I, I was like, I understand that the laws of physics are required, but where do the other requirements come from? So, well, we've, we've hired a market research firm to investigate what customers want by asking them, would you like to have a free pony, and would you like the, to wash your car, and would you like to live forever? And customers say yes, so we write those things down in the requirements. Why do you think it's such a hard engineering problem? So I was like, okay, could we maybe think about, instead of requirements, hypotheses. We think customers would like this. And is there anything we could do to start learning about whether our hypotheses are true sooner rather than later? And we started, we would call that a minimum viable product. So we started to have that conversation. And the engineers were like, well, you know, not all the use cases are as hard as each other. There's, there's different ones. So you can imagine like the salt water makes the marine electric use case somewhat more difficult than the stationary drilling where weight is no concern. So hey, could we build the ver first version of the engine only for one use case? Would that make it a little bit easier? And so the engineer's like, well, that might shave two or three years off the development time. So I'm like, pretty good. And what about, you, you must have to develop a prototype engine before you go to mass production, right? So how long to create one engine? Oh, maybe that has to happen you know, 18 months in. And so we're trying to think about, okay, are there cuts? And the engineers, once we started to ask them these different questions, they started to play almost like, uh, name that tune, like, hey, I could get it done in two years. I could get it done. So one of the engineers finally says, you know, if you were willing to pick the easiest of the use cases, stationary drilling, we already have an engine that's kind of similar, and we could modify it to have the performance characteristics of the Series X and just sell it at the Series X price as if we'd already done all of this work. And I'm like, ooh, this is getting exciting. How long will that take? That would only take a few months. And I was like, hey, uh, corporate vice president, since I have you here, anyone in this room have a customer that might want to buy this prototype that we've described? And one of the sales VPs, like as a matter of fact, I have a specific customer who's always asking me for that exact thing, and I'm like, this is going to be great. We're going to get the cycle time changed, time to market change, from five years to six months, a full order of magnitude improvement, and I'm going to be a hero. You know, people are going to be, I was going to be a statue of me in the, in the Management Hall of Fame because I got this coming. It's all going to be great until uh, the statue was put on hold temporarily because one of the vice presidents was really, really not having a good time. 
and I mean, we're talking about arms crossed, the executive death stare, <laughs> the whole thing. And he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What is the point of selling only one engine? A second ago, we were going to make $4 billion. And now what, if we sell one engine, we're going to make, what, like $100? Of course, one of the engineers very helpfully chimed in, oh, no, no, sir, we would lose money on the first, <laughs> the first sale. And he's like, we're going to lie. we were going to make money before and lose, I was like, could you really understand business? Because I think our goal is to make money, not lose money. This just seems like a waste of time. And I had to tell him, look, you're right. If you believe that this plan is going to work, if you already know what's going to happen in the future, then all this experimentation is a waste of time. And he was like, great. I'm out of here. Okay, terrific. We're done. And luckily for me, uh, his colleagues were like, hold on, wait a second. Didn't we just say a second ago that we're not totally sure this is going to work? And don't we not know if this forecast is true? And they started to have a conversation amongst themselves about what it might look like to pursue a project like this in a different way. So it wasn't that I told them what to do, but they themselves had started to internalize this different question, this different way of looking at it. That ultimately led to the creation of a program called FastWorks at GE. Uh, it began with that one project that I worked with them as a coach to, to work with that project. And then we started doing batches of projects, almost you know, like a startup accelerator, like a Y Combinator. We did four projects at a time, and then eight at a time. And then uh, you know, we started to do them in different business units. The great thing about GE, they make everything. So you know, the first four or five projects was the, you know, the Series X engine. We did a, a gas turbine that sold into a combined cycle power plant that cost $1 billion. You definitely don't buy that on Amazon. Uh, but then, you know, then we did a refrigerator, then we did a neonatal incubator, then we did a high-tech diagnostic hospital. I mean, we just did all kinds of stuff. We did projects in the U.S., and we did projects in, in Europe and in Asia. And we, you know, we started, really started to expand out the kinds of projects. We did internal projects, too, IT, HR, finance projects. And we built up this critical mass of success stories, and a few failures too, that helped the company understand that this way of working could be viable, and then they decided to deploy it company-wide. So we wound up in those first couple years training every CEO of every one of their businesses, every one of their direct reports, effectively every executive at what they call the executive band and above, so maybe the top 5,000 managers in the company. Uh, and this became a really big part of the way that they work. So that that transformation plays out according to kind of a pretty consistent pattern when you see this happen of kind of the critical mass, the wide deployment, and then in the third phase, the kind of reform of the company's deep systems. Because eventually you do have to change how people are compensated, you have to change how project budgets are allocated, you have to change a whole bunch of gatekeeper functions like legal finance, IT, uh, to make them into enabling functions. So there's a massive amount of change. And I've seen that same pattern play out, not just at a place like GE or P&G or Intuit or Toyota, but also places like the United States federal government that did a big uh, digital reform uh, transformation that we can talk about if of interest. And as well, it's the same basic pattern of a startup that goes through product market fit. You have this rapid expansion and the creation of new procedures and then uh, the tinkering with deep systems. You're just doing it for the first time rather than as a reform. So that's, that, that's kind of the common language and common, common uh, story-based, anyway, that the, that the book is, is based on. Perfect. And so if I can take one piece of this three-phase approach that you just yes. described for us. Uh, the book is called The Startup Boy, How Entrepreneurial Management Transforms Culture and Drives Growth. So thinking about the deep system, one of the most difficult parts of the deep system is culture. So yep. if I can take one more question before we go to the public and say, 
What's your working definition of culture? What role does culture play in yeah. this startup? Yeah, no, th thank you for asking. Culture is so important. And you know that, that old saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast, absolutely true. But we really don't understand, I think we have very strange beliefs about culture. So first of all, my, my working definition is culture is the way that we work when no one tells us how to work. So there's just an automatic set of beliefs that everybody has. They don't have to be told. So for example, I, we did the transformation of FastWorks. We went to the GE, the Global Research Center, their PhD research lab. It's like one of the last true industrial research uh, centers in the world. It's an incredible place. It's like Muppet Labs in there that's working on all kinds of crazy things. And I remember having a, and we were talking to them about how they need to use FastWorks too because oftentimes the research that we're doing is based on the researcher's assumption about what the use case is or what the thing will be used for. And if that use case is wrong, the research is going to be wrong. And Lean Startup is a scientific theory. And I was trying to say, look, you already have a terrific skill at doing the scientific method, but when you walk into the business boardroom, you become an astrologer. And you accuse scientists of believing in astrology. It's not a very, they're like, how dare you suggest such a thing? I was like, listen, normally, if I tell you I can predict what's going to happen in the future, that doesn't go very well for me, <laughs> psychologically speaking. I'm going to be committed to an institution. That's not science. That's, you're just making these, but like, somehow in business, we think being able to predict things and kind of with the power of your mind manifest things is somehow good. So we were talking about how we have to use our scientific skills to translate that into the business domain. And we were talking about how do you build this new culture. I said, listen, how do you all know to use science when you're in the lab? Like, is there an employee handbook where it says, be sure to use the scientific method, not astrology? And they looked at me like, nobody has, you don't have to put that in that. There's no, no, there's no employee handbook. I was like, I didn't see any posters as I was walking in that said, everybody use science. Science works, exclamation point. You know, but that's how we do culture change for innovation. We put up posters. Everybody, you know, be innovative and think new things. Like, no, everyone just knows that that's the way that you do work. It's obvious. But you, you got to think about the development of the research. At some point, somebody had to set up this lab and set that culture into motion. And I think whenever you try to understand why is a culture a certain way, you'll always find systemic answers. The, the procedures of who gets promoted and who doesn't, when, especially in the early days. But that's, if you don't use science, then you don't get promoted. You, you know, like there's all kinds of problems that will be caused for you. So I have this uh, simple framework that I use in the, uh, in the book. This is the original diagram in the Lean Startup that I called the Startup Way, which is simply like this. Pyramid diagram from bottom to top. Accountability, process, culture, people, in that order. The purpose of all of this management stuff is to support people. But everyone believes that you just, you want to change something, you go top down. So I'm going to go buy a fancy startup, bring some more innovative people. If my organization's not very creative, it must be because the people who work here are not very creative. And it's, I'm always the one with the bad news. Say, I'm sorry, sir, actually, you hire amazingly creative people, but you operate at great expense, a creativity dampening field that's designed to prevent anyone in this company from being allowed to innovate. So maybe we should change the system that does that, and that, you know, that's why I'm a very bad consultant, because most senior executives don't want to hear it. <laughs> Fine with me, as, as Dr. Deming once said, um, it is not necessary to change, survival is not mandatory. So what do I care? You know, okay, you know, that's no problem. My friends on Sand Hill Road be happy to fund a startup to disrupt you if you don't want to make the transformation. Um, 
So we have to look at the way that we hold people accountable. Accountability is the foundation of management. Most of our management techniques, going all the way back to Alfred Sloan and Scientology, they were designed to figure out who's doing a good job and who should be promoted and who's not. And if we're going to change culture, we first have to change accountability. Then we have to change the process by which we make decisions. So that's where process layers, where things like minimum viable product and pivots and continuous deployment can fit in. And once we have found a way to incubate those uh, you know, those new processes, even within a single team, that can become the seed of a new culture that will allow us to attract and retain the best people. So culture is the mechanism by which uh, our strategic and process choices support and influence people, but you can't change it directly. You have to change it through structural reform. Thank you very much for your insights, Eric. Thank you. And I think in order to continue the pursuit of learning, we need to get our audience involved um, we will have a microphone for anyone who wants to raise a question now. If you raise a question, please wait for the microphone to reach you, tell us who you are, and then explain your point. We call call in LSE, so <laughs> if I don't see any hand up quickly, let's start with our head of department, who is right here, Professor Nofel Vilkasim. Perhaps while he puts forward the first idea, our, our professor in the tie and suit. That's the head of the department. Thank you, so, sir. Eric, Thank in you your for book, coming. you talk about immigration and entrepreneurship, right? Yes. What is sort of the mutual role between the two, and can you have one without the other? Immigration and entrepreneurship? Yeah. I, I can't believe that this is controversial. I mean, seriously, every study that has ever been done in the history of this entire field has shown that. Uh, immigration is essential to uh, entrepreneurial formation and that entrepreneurial formation is the driver of economic growth. It's not like, it's not like in the literature it's somehow confusing or controversial. If you look at Silicon Valley, I can't remember the stat now, 40% I think of Silicon Valley successful companies had an immigrant co-founder and there's a direct link between uh, welcoming and openness of immigrants and every index of uh, economic development that you can measure. I mean, it's, it's like... It's not quite as well established as gravity, but like it's pretty straight. It's very straightforward. We know the causal mechanism of it. This is well studied. Well, I mean, it just could not be more obvious. And then we, and especially in the more entrepreneurial developed countries, we're so take it for granted, and we just we're so lucky that everything's going so great that we're like, I know, let's shoot ourselves in the foot. Why? For fun? I don't understand. I mean, it's just it's totally baffling. You cannot find anybody who is anti-immigration in the startup movement. You'd have to be, I mean, you'd be laughed out of the, I mean, just to consider it completely ridiculous. But let's talk about it anyway. Because it's a, it is a controversy, and it's certainly, our world is, you know, we're being, our civilization is being, you know, taken apart at the seams. And so, uh, you know, we should, we got to be, uh, we have to be, have a, engage in a leadership role in, uh, uh, as, as the entrepreneurial community, as the management community. So in the U.S., for, I'll just give you one example, we, we tried very hard in Silicon Valley to lobby for something called the startup visa, which is like in the United States, which you know, used to be a pro-immigration country, although I don't know what's happening right now. Uh, we, we even still, we don't have a visa category for startup founder. So even if you want to apply for a visa, you wind up having to apply for some other category, and the poor, uh, you know, just the visa examiners, the questions that they're trained to ask to evaluate your application don't make any sense. So you're like, I, you know, I have... Uh, $12 million in Series A funding from Sequoia Capital, and they're like, but what is your salary? It's like, no, you don't understand. Like, and then it's like, they don't know, and you're like, how many people do you employ? It's like, well, not any yet, 
but give me a minute, and I'll, you know, like three years from now, I could easily employ a thousand Americans. Wouldn't that be pretty good? And they're like, oh, so zero. And it's just like they don't have the right. So we were lobbying Congress to, to get them to pass a startup visa. This is not, the story does not have a happy ending, as you can imagine. And, and, and the arguments that people would put it forth were like bizarre. And so just think about it this way. When someone becomes an entrepreneur, what were they doing five minutes beforehand? First of all, if someone is in the United States and wants to become an entrepreneur, they probably were already in the United States on an existing visa category. So they're like probably, like Larry and Sergey of Google, in a PhD program at an American university. Such a person has probably been in the United States for 10, 12, 15 years being a resource consumer as we invest in their education and we welcome them to be part of our uh, intellectual community. And then they're like, okay, I've been here for 15 years. I think it's just the right moment for me to switch from being a resource consumer to a job creator. And we're like, get the hell out of my country. <laughs> That's just the right moment to send them home. What? Yeah, it's just, cr like, that makes no sense. And then we live in a world of globalization. People have noticed. Many of the people who are angry about this are, are very aware. So it's even more stupid because as a consumer of products, do you care where the company is headquartered? Of course you don't. We get to buy products from wherever. I mean, walking around London, I'm like, wow, I can see a lot of American brand names here. Right? So like, yes, we can sell products headquartered anywhere, anywhere else that we want. That's wonderful. Capital is super portable. So as an investor in startups, I can invest startups wherever I want. I have investments in European startups and all over the world. American venture funds have figured out how to create uh, subsidiary funds in all the developing economies. So you know, rich investors will be fine. But the spillover economic and labor effects matter where you are. They're not as portable. So it's like not only get out of my country, but please create all these jobs somewhere else. Certainly not in the United States. What the hell are we talking about? Like just even if, you, if you're you anti-immigration in the abstract for some other reason, like this surely wouldn't be the, this wouldn't be the place to start with that. It just strikes me as, as totally bizarre that we don't take this seriously. And yet, we could not get the startup visa passed uh, in the United States. We had to get a kind of hack version of it done by the Obama administration uh, administratively. And you can imagine what's happening to that right now. So no, I think this is, I mean, I thank you for that question. I think it's critically important. And we have to be much more vocal about it as a community. We cannot take for granted that economic dynamism is going to be here with us forever unless we work to make it so. I believe there's a participant on this side. Oh, hi, everybody, up here. I believe there's... There's so many of you. Quite a number of questions. Good. Hi. Bring uh, it on. My, my name is Dina. I'm a customer strategy consultant. Um, I'm just wondering, you're saying about how you start with accountability. Yes. So if you're looking at an organization and they just say, go for it, do whatever you want, we just, we, we know we're doing something wrong, we're not changing, we're not adapting, we feel like we're lagging behind. Yeah. You've got free reign. Where would you start in the organization? Well, so here's actually, that's, that's actually not a great setup to do this, and here's why. I, in the book, I try to argue that, that we have to think of entrepreneurship as a corporate function. And so the common things that people do with entrepreneurship don't really make sense if you compare them to how we handle other functions. So like you might, someone be like, you know what, we don't need a head of marketing or a CMO. Everybody will be in charge of marketing because I want to infuse marketing into my whole organization. So we don't need a marketing function. Everyone's in charge of marketing. You'd be like, that, that doesn't sound right. That's fun. That's not going to work. We don't need a head of finance. We don't need a CFO. Everyone's in charge of finance. It'll be fine. <laughs> or my favorite, let's start a finance lab. 
We'll just, we're going to create a cool building. You know, the Entrepreneur Lab, the Innovation Lab has exposed brick. This one's going to be super boring accounting look. We'll put all the finance people over there, and they'll handle all the company's finance, and the rest of us can just pretend that there is no finance. That's not going to work very well either, right? Everyone understands that uh, every function has to have both a vertical component of creating career advancement opportunities for the people that specialize in that function, as well as a horizontal component, having a seat at the table at defining all of the company's policies uh, in partnership with the other functions. So when we say we have carte blanche to start with this, what we often wind up doing is just sending some teams out to go either be in an innovation lab or like do some futuristic thinking. And you know, I'll just tell you a funny story. I was once giving a talk to uh, a group of senior executives from different companies and just the same conversation we're having now. During one of the breaks, someone comes up to me and says, excuse me, I have a question. I have, I, he was really irritated. There's a colleague of mine who has an innovation title in my company, and he wears red pants. I mean, come on, if I wore red pants to the office, I would be fired. He ride, rides around on a Segway and is always telling us to think about the future. And my question to you is, what does this person do for a living? And as if it was my fault that there's this chief innovation officer who rides around us. I was like, well, I, you know, I don't know. Like that. So we keep doing these like, bizarre things. Can you imagine if like, the, the job of the chief financial officer was to spout slogans and tell you cool things about finance but had no operational responsibility? What are we doing? So we know the answer to this question. So, so I would be very nervous about a team with carte blanche because, first of all, carte blanche means no accountability. I can just do whatever I want. That's not, that's not good. Startups that are overfunded have a very high mortality rate, which you can learn by reading TechCrunch for two seconds. That's true in corporate settings, too. I would much rather have a CEO, well, you know, like Jeff Immelt was, who said, you don't have carte blanche. I'd like to understand how this experiment is going to work. Because entrepreneurs have a tremendous superpower, which is we love to spend other people's money. We're really good at it. And then the other people come knocking to say, what did I get for my money? And we're like, I learned so much. And they're like, OK, that's great, but I can't really put learning in the dividend. We can't return learning to limited partners. Like, actually, nobody cares what you learned. What did I get? So we actually, I would much rather have an upfront negotiation about what do we want to see for progress. Now, it doesn't always have to be financial terms, because uh, our short-term infected corporations tend to be way too eager for there to be magic profits to appear instantaneously. So we've got to have patience and a long-term philosophy in order for this to, to work. So we have to look at ourselves and say, what, what kind of conviction do we have at, as management that this is going to be a good idea? For example, I tell in the book, one executive I worked with, he was convinced that if the company could improve cycle time, other good things would follow. So when we would do initial projects, he didn't have to wait for the program to be a commercial success, to know that we were on the right track, if he could measure and see cycle time improvements. Every executive will have a slightly different theory of change of how this thing works. Like Some people believe that cycle time drives superior morale, which drives superior customer satisfaction. I've worked with other executives that think superior morale drives cycle time. Which drives, and I've heard other people say, you know what, the user, superior user experience is what actually drives morale and drives cycle. So whatever the unique theory of change is that that executive has, I would want to build a program designed to demonstrate that these ideas work at micro scale. And then the other thing that's really important when we design these programs is we have to start to think by orders of magnitude rather than like an ICBM. So another common mistake I see people make is we do one pilot program, it works, and then it's like full deployment. And a lot of executives like, are, are schizophrenic. You, like the same executive who five minutes ago was trying to tell you that this was a terrible idea and I'd ever want to do it is like, but how come we haven't deployed it to the whole company? 
It's like five minutes ago, you didn't even think we should do this in one team. And now, you're, you know, why haven't we done full deployment? And that, the reason for that is that actually the most effective kind of bureaucratic sabotage is to praise something too much to raise expectations for it. So your, your supposed allies who are like, we've got to go faster, 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 100% deployment, like, that makes the program more expensive. And then they start to be like, wait, what did we get for all that money? Oh, uh, you know what? We should probably cancel. It didn't work out. And they never had to be the bad guys that they don't think it's a good idea. They were always on record praising the CEO's pet project as a good idea. So we don't want that. What we want to do is say, look, let's, let's do four projects and then eight and then 16 and then 32. Same is true when we're doing a new product, even when we're doing a startup. Like, let's treat the number of customers in the experiment as a flow and then increase the flow exponentially. Let's have 10 customers a week through our MVP until we're confident that we can make it work for 10 customers a week, then let's do 100 customers a week. Let's not go from 10 to 10 million. Let's work our way up. And the curse and the blessing of exponential growth goes all the way back to the hockey stick shape. We tend to obsess about one or the other parts of the shape, but both are important. During exponential growth, things go too slow, and then they go too fast. So if you only look at the vanity metrics, the gross numbers, you don't understand whether you're making progress or not. And so when you think in exponential terms, and humans are bad at this, that's why we need science and mechanics and, and best practices. That's why we need an entrepreneurial function that can specialize in learning to think exponentially. Uh, we can start to say, OK, here are the leading indicators that the epidemic is proceeding apace. Does that make sense? Thanks for the question. We have so the gentleman in gray. Are we going to stop her? I there's someone. Thank you. My name is Sinan Gut from the Netherlands. Two small questions. First, is it correct that you disagree with the solution which Professor Clayton Christensen proposed? That's one. And yeah. two, how do you see the cooperation between the entrepreneurship function and R&D? Thank you for both those questions. First of all, no, I have no disagreement with Clay. Uh, he, he's been a terrific supporter uh, of my work and, and uh, I, you know, has given a lot of endorsement. What I would say is that most people who attempt to use his theory run into some practical problems that uh, he doesn't, they're like, they're just not his domain to address. So what happens is, for, I mean, first of all, if the innovator's dilemma wasn't true, there wouldn't be the startup opportunity, right? Like, ultimately, it's important that it be true. Otherwise, what are we all doing? You know, that's why we have this opportunity, and that's why... Uh, it, it's like an, an, an essential driver of dynamism that prevents us from having, you know, too many old boys clubs running the whole world. So I think it's great. I'm, so I'm glad that it's true. And also, people's fear of disruption is also very healthy, too, because that also it can be a motivator for change for organizations that want to survive uh, from era to era. But in, in, until very recently, the very best we could do to implement his recommendations would be to either do a Skunk Works project in secret off to the side, or do, like he's documented several examples of a, rever a reverse merger, where you basically spin off a wholly owned subsidiary, they pioneer the new model, and then you put those people in charge of the parent organization. What all of those initiatives have in common is you just can't do very many of them, right? Like, he, he had, you know, the CEO has to personally trans has to champion the specific transformation, or you have to do it in secret, and if you start keeping secrets from middle managers, you can't get away with that very often. Like, you can do it once or twice, but once middle managers learn that this is the kind of organization that keeps secrets. Like, they are like ninja assassins. They will find you and kill you. So once you make them paranoid, you've like weaponized uh, their behaviors to a really toxic degree. And that's why you, there's a lot of famous examples of companies like IBM has the Skunk Works that invents the IBM PC in Boca Raton, Florida. But then like, 
they rarely repeat the same trick again. And after the thing is integrated back into the parent organization, they rarely do continuous innovation that way. So I don't blame anybody from the past for that. I think those were the best we could do before. But now we have much better management theory for the practice of how entrepreneurial teams should be run. We have far more data about the kind of Silicon Valley and startup Silicon Valley style startup movement beliefs about how we structure teams and do, like, we can do that kind of innovation now out in the open with much more transparency because we just, we have better theory we didn't have before. And I'm sorry, what was your second question? How do you see the uh, cooperation between the entrepreneurship function, R&D? Oh, and R&D, yeah. So if you think about the, the Global Research Center, that's like a classic R&D situation. If you, wanted, if you ever wanted to press yourself horribly, go to any research lab in the country and just interview researchers and be like, tell me about all the cool research you've done. Uh, tell me a story of a research application that you did, that it that you, the research worked, but the, the research has not yet been commercialized. So it's just sitting on a shelf. And now break out your violin. <laughs> so they'll be like, well, we invented this new ink that can be used to you know, rapidly detect all cancers dramatically earlier, but it's still sitting on a shelf because we couldn't find any manufacturer who thought that it would work. You know, it was everyone that didn't think it would help their current quarter profits to have to totally change how they do diagnostics. And so it's just sitting there. You're like, the cancer cure is sitting on your shelf right now? They're like, yeah. You have a plan to do anything about that? What can I do? I did the research. It's, their, it's somebody else's problem. And it's like, you do a day of that and you will really be depressed because you see the most amazing breakthroughs are just sitting. I mean, our labs are full of incredible breakthroughs. Now, if I go interview the relevant commercializing response, so somebody's responsible, someone paid for the research, and I go interview them, they'll say, oh, that, that gizmo, that, they, they claim it's going to cure cancer, but it doesn't really work, or it'd be too expensive to manufacture. We'll never get rid of it. There's always some problem. And you're like, well, the researcher didn't tell me about that problem. Ah, he's some egghead. What does he know? He doesn't care about practicality, right? So we're just like a classic working against you know, silos, not, not doing right. So the entrepreneurial function, I think, should have primary responsibility for making sure that the things we spend money to research get commercialized. And we can do that in two ways. One, we can, we can create better pathways for getting research into industry. And we can build programs like Steve Blank has a great program at the NSF called i where we train uh, scientists how to take research out of the lab and spin it out as separate startups. But even, you know, uh, like when we did, this re we did this transformation at the GRC at GE, we also created a mechanism for scientists in the lab to be able to create their own commercial prototypes and sell them to customers directly, which was like, that was considered true heresy. But we were like, look, if the, if, if the parent division who paid for the research doesn't want to commercialize it, that is currently a political question, but it ought to be an empirical question. They said no customers will pay the price premium for it, or it won't get right. Like they, they claim there's all these practical problems. OK. Let's not debate whether it might work or not. Let's go prove that it actually will work. And I got to tell you, the first time we did this, uh, where the GRC was using their own balance sheet as a commercial backstop and making their own customer, it was very controversial. And I remember being in a, in a planning meeting with some folks you know, from other divisions who were just like, they're like, well, who's going to figure out, who's going to take the customer service phone calls? And the head of global research was like, we're going to take them. And he's like, who's going who's to handle warranty and returns and legal? And he's like, I will. And who's going to get, and he's like, we're just going to do it. We're going to do liability-constrained experiments. We're not going to sell a gazillion trillion units, but we're going to sell enough units to get a statistically significant read on the market potential. And every time we've done that, I mean, I've seen this over and over and over again, what you immediately discover practically in the first month of the exploration 
is that the specifications of the research are not correct. So you've actually inadvertently made the research problem harder for yourselves by not understanding what the customers want. And I'm going to just give you a really trivial example. We had this amazing technology that was going to be used uh, to do diagnostics in hospitals, and it was this awesome thing. And they were really super focused on imagery resolution and uh, the exact you know, perf perfect uh, diagnostic guarantees and all this stuff, stuff, stuff. And so in order to make that work, the physical machine was massive. It was like a massive thing that would take up a room half this size, had all this cryogenic components to it, and it was just like crazy uh, uh, piece of equipment. And they had never actually asked any hospitals about if they would like to install this massive room-sized piece of equipment on their most uh, highly trafficked floors where they make all their money. And they're like, how many beds is it going to take up? And the team's like, I don't know, it shouldn't be that many. How many beds is it going to take up? You know, probably only 40 or 50 beds. I'm sure it'll be no big deal. <laughs> I was like, oh, so in order to get this piece of equipment, I have to deck, utterly destroy the profitability of the institution? I'm going to say no to that. Like, so the size of it matters to you? They're like, we much prefer it be the right size than it have accurate imagery because, you know, the, the problems we're looking for are not minute. They're really obvious. If we could just get a, I mean, it was just like, all the assumptions about what the research had to be done. These guys were going to win a Nobel Prize in cryogenics to get the, re and it's like they've got the wrong problem that they're working on. So somebody has to be in charge of that aspect of research and development, and most companies, nobody is. Yes. Can we get a microphone to our participant in the front row? Um, I want to ask about technology, because you started with a waterfall, and the waterfall was the created at the time of when software was written in paper. Yeah. And I just wondered it, to what extent, you know, CAD CAM and digital platforms and new approaches to software have enabled startup culture. It's absolutely inextricably linked. And it's tricky. I, I, I mean, look, technology is my first love, okay? I, I'm a technologist by training. I grew up programming computers. Um, so I, I, I have to be careful about this. Cause I, don't, I don't want people to think, as a common misconception is, I can't do any of this stuff unless I'm in a digital business. And then, you know, like GE people are like, we're in an industrial business, so this doesn't apply to us. You know, we have to make clear that this can be broadly used. The, the sad truth is, just don't tell anybody, but between us, everyone's in the digital business, whether they know it or not, right? Because your customers think that they can get what they want digitally. Like they, the expectation of how things work, the user experience demands that customers have, have been ratcheted way through the roof, and this is causing all kinds of problems and all kinds of non-software businesses. But a big part of Lean Startup success is we don't require people to, um, we don't ever allow one function of the company to lord it over the others. So nobody, like, nobody who doesn't work in the software part of the organization wants to feel like they're doing a software method. You ever try to get designers to learn Agile or something? Uh, it's impossible. You ever try to get engineers to learn design thinking? Can't be done. You ever try to get IT people to learn statistical process control from the manufacturing side? They won't do it. It's like, are the people stupid? They can't learn. And plus, these, these methods have a lot in common with each other. If you look at them schematically, like they're all these cycle diagrams. and they have, It's like you would think an organization full of people doing rapid iteration testing in every silo would be a rapid iteration built to learn company, but you'd be wrong. The work product is passed from silo to silo across these like neutral zones of mutual combatants. So instead of that, we have to be very careful not to say that this is a software thing, but you want to drive cycle time down for a production process, like a little, little IT goes a long way. And I'll give you an example. I was working on uh, a, a kitchen appliance with the team where this is like high-end appliances that 
generally speaking, we, the company would have produced a new version of the appliance every five to seven years. That's kind of the refresh rate in the industry. And we wanted to know, could we, get, could we have an improvement in cycle time? And you know, we were hemming and hawing about it. Could it be done? Could it not be done? And you know, some of the issues were business model and technical. And like, part of the reason we only do it infrequently is that the high-end kitchen appliance stores that do the displays, we force them to build out a new display at their own expense every time we have a new model, which they never want to do. So even if we ship a new product, it doesn't show up. Customers never see it for several years because it takes a long time. We're like, okay, is this a business model error? Like, they're much smaller than we are. Why is this expense on their balance sheet rather than our balance sheet? Some of them business model issues, but some of them were just production issues. Just, it takes a long time to produce the factory that can do uh, produce millions of units of this thing. And so we started to talk about, well, could we use 3D printing? Could we use uh, you know advanced techniques? And 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 they're like, well, but we can't do that. Uh, you, we have to use injection-molded plastic parts to build this appliance, and everyone knows how injection molding works, right? It takes a long time to build out the mold and the, the, the robotics and everything. And so we started to be like, well, if you had to, if I said I put a gun to your side, you have to produce 100 units, you know, could you do it? And the team eventually came up with this very clever solution. They bought a injection molding machine where the cutout where the mold is is just an empty space. And they use a 3D printer to produce a hard composite mold that you could slot in there and run the, run the machine. The reason that nobody does it that way is that the injection molding is too hot, and even the best composite uh, ceramics melt eventually. But I was like, define eventually for me. Like, oh, we could never be able to do more than 100 parts before we had to print it again. And it's like, everyone in mass production understands that that's terrible, except we haven't sold any appliances yet. So it's like, well, could we just make 100 appliances and sell that and then worry about the scalability after? And it's like, oh, cool. So that team got to a point where they, would, they were able to do a new version of that appliance every week. And they had a store where customers would come by, and every week they would bring the new version of it to customers and understand the difference in customer reaction based on the new version. And of course, what they immediately found out is that 50% of the things that they thought were essential for this product, customers didn't even notice. And it was horrifying. And they're like, wait a minute, they, we built this brand new awesome thing, and customers didn't, like the consumer behavior. So like, they learned all this amazing stuff. And this wasn't like a market research exercise. They had real product available for sale. If the customer wanted to buy, they could buy it. So if you, if you look on the surface, that's just a manufacturing story about changing cycle time. If you look under the hood of these transformations, you'll always find uh, digital power. But a word of warning. A lot of companies want to invest in digital first and then transformation second, which is exactly backwards. And the reason, speaking as a technologist, I love technology because so many of the things that technology can do are indistinguishable from magic. That's awesome. The problem is that the converse of that is not necessarily true. Someone who is selling you magic is not necessarily selling you something that works. They might be selling you snake oil. If you can't test and evaluate who's telling you the truth, then you can't buy the right digital stuff. And there's people who are very skilled at fleecing you out of your money by selling you digital products that don't actually do anything. Not any of my friends, of course, but I know some of these various characters. So you can wind up uh, investing a ton of money in useless digital junk. You're much better off building a management capability to test and learn, and then use that to discover which digital tools and services actually work. So please do do it in the proper order. We have any more? There's a, there's a participant at the back. If we can take a. Oh, we have an equity problem with the with the upstairs. <laughs> I promise to come back upstairs. How is that?
Um, the upstairs people have heard the... that before. <laughs> I do promise to keep an eye. Um, can we pass on the microphone to the back? We actually, because we live stream, we need you to be. Oh yeah, shout out to our live streamers. Right. Thank you for tuning in uh, on, on YouTube. Thank you. Can we get a microphone? Um, and then in the meantime, as we take this question, can we get a microphone to the back? Just to have a awesome. We'll be ready. We'll have them pipelined and ready to go. Right. To my, my question's about your opinion on the proliferation of incubators and accelerators. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm from Canada, and our government's just committed a billion dollars to innovation and entrepreneurship. I know they're doing this in Paris. Everyone's trying to create the next startup. And it, I just want to know if you think that you can actually foster innovation and, and creation of startups, yeah. and also about your opinion on how these are designed to really benefit the unicorns. Yeah. With the spray and stay approach, and they're not working to create actual companies that fall below the top 10%. Well, yeah, is that a question or a statement? No, no, <laughs> I mean, it I was a question. Job, yes, it was a good. question. Yeah, sure. Uh, look, so, so we've got to be careful here a little bit. I mean, first of all, we have, we have, we have some folks from the French government here tonight with us to, to working on these issues, um, and, and I'm sure other folks who, who have given this a lot of thought. We have to be real careful with this. First of all, the vast majority of incubators and accelerators are not proven to have had any impact, even in the high-tech, venture-backed, excel I mean, really, we have Y Combinator and Techstars that seem to be, you know, kind of uh, having all this impact, but the, the long tail of other incubators, the jury is really still out on whether they accomplish anything or not. And even for Y Combinator, it's unclear whether the reason it works is because it actually accelerates progress or it's just a selection bias thing where once they had the reputation of being where the best companies go, they just attract the best companies and those companies would have been fine. In other words, I, I do think they, they create some value, but, it's a, you know, but by no means has it been studied rigorously and we don't, I don't believe that we really know the answer. I was in a Scandinavian country early on when I was traveling, first traveling with, with Lean Startup, and they took me to an incubator that they had set up by the government. It was a really beautiful space, exposed brick, uh, and, you know, it really they had hundreds of companies working in the accelerator and I was really, and they had all these coaches and all this learning, it, was, it looked really amazing. And I met with the director of the program and I was just, just trying to make casual conversation. I said, oh, how, how do you judge success of the accelerator? And I didn't realize I had like stepped on a landmine. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, just how do you know if you're doing a good job? He's like, well, the city direct, you know, we're, we're a city, or I don't remember, we're funded by the government to have people in this incubator creating companies. So if the incubator is full, then we're, and we're as a success. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, they don't take any equity. It's free. It's free rent, free money, free exposed brick space. It's very nice there. And I was like, what's the graduation rate out of the incubator? And she's like, what do you mean? Uh-oh. What's the average tenure of company? And some companies have been there for several years. It's like if the company still fits in the incubator after several years, is that a problem? She's like, no, because my goal is to have the incubator be full. And it's full. And I was just like, oh, you know, my God. I can't imagine how much money. And then she was like, we're part of a network of incubators. <laughs> There's one in every city. I was like, oh, my God. Look. It, this is a hard problem, and we got to take it really seriously. I mean, Techstars is the very first American accelerator to have an IPO. Just had it today. Y Combinator has not yet had one IPO yet. Uh, I would really prefer us to think differently about what a pro-entrepreneurship public policy can look like. 
and not just be doing accelerators and incubators, but really, for, to whatever extent we're going to do that with government money, we have to figure out how to do it rigorously so we don't have these political distortions. Um, and frankly, to your point about the top 10%, at least, I would much rather pump that money into ordinary people's pockets. First of all, I don't know why we think that putting money into startups when there's insufficient demand in the economy is a good idea. Startups need customers far more than they need financing, so I would rather have a booming economy that's going to generate a lot of startups. And I would rather entice people into entrepreneurship who might not otherwise have done it. If there is a causal theory of why Y Combinator has been effective, it definitely has to be some version of they convinced people to become entrepreneurs who might not otherwise have. And if you look at the first few classes of Y Combinator with the iconic hits in them like Dropbox, Read, and you read, just like look, read, like look at the story, those are people who were at top universities and were thinking about whether to do a startup or not and were on the fence. And the fact that there was this program with a structure and a stipend enticed them to do it. The original Y Combinator stipend, I believe, was $4,000 per founder, total investment. So it wasn't like, a, it's like, you imagine a government program that did that? That's too small. We can't give away only $4,000. We need to make it huge because we think that size equals impact, and that's just, that's just wrong. So if, like, I've been talking to, in the book, there's a policy chapter, and I try to talk about what a pro-entrepreneurship public policy should look like, and it was just the same conversation we're having with about immigration. We had to think about what was the person doing before they became an entrepreneur, and how do we do that? It, it scrambles our partisan categories and kind of breaks through the hyper-polarized nonsense that's in our world right now, because it's not pro-business or pro-labor. It's, right, it's supporting people before they became a titan of industry. So giving away massive subsidies and tax breaks to existing titans of industry, that doesn't help us at all. That just helps in, you know, entrench their rent-seeking behavior. We've got to help increase dynamism. So I would much rather, for example, we just said, how many people in every country, you know, in the US, I don't remember what the proportion is. I think it might be something like half the population has no or negative net worth. So even if you did have a good idea to start a startup, how the hell are you supposed to do it? You can't, like, you can't even take a day off work to go explore it. And you're like, well, just have a side hustle. But that's a very privileged position to be able to do such a thing. And if you don't have the ability to just put, you know, AWS on your credit card, and like, you don't even have the time to take off work to apply to the incubator. It's like a very, it's like a lengthy and complicated process. So I would rather we just said, you know what, whenever we need macroeconomic stimulus, instead of giving money to banks and hoping they loan it out to small businesses, because in a low interest, low growth environment, we learned that banks are happy to just put that money on their balance sheet. It's like just use the Federal Reserve, use the central bank, and just give money directly to citizens. Make microloans to every person. So how many, how many startups are there right now that are not being founded right now for, because the founder lacks $1,000 to do it? I have no idea. I bet it's not zero. And then as soon as I said, in the U.S., if I say something like this, people are like, wait a minute, you're going to give $1,000 of credit to every citizen in the United States? That would be $300 billion. And I'm like, first of all, that is not that much money by U.S. standards. Certainly by U.S. federal government standards, we spend a lot more money than that on the craziest stuff like you wouldn't believe. So don't tell me we can't afford it. Tell me that whenever someone says, you don't hear politicians saying we can't afford something, that you already know you're being sold something. Because, right, if the return on investment was worth it, we totally could afford it. There was a lot of times we can't afford a massive tax cut. It's like we can't, we can't afford it if we want to do it, but we have a theory that the economic benefits that it unlocks are worth it. What are the economic benefits of my microloan? No one has any idea. We don't know. So we just have a political fight about it. But the same trick we used when I was talking about the entrepreneurial function, we can use it again. Let's take the political problem and make it an empirical problem. This is a very easy program to pilot. Let's just do it in one neighborhood. 
one city, one town, see if it works. But we have academics who are currently doing little universal basic income type pilot programs, but they don't have the budget to scale up if it works. So the time horizon to get any impact is too slow. If, the, if we were having a good faith negotiation about does, like, can the government really do this and we all actually wanted it to work instead of having a ridiculous ideological BS fight, if we were actually good faith actors, we know exactly what we would do. We would just say, listen, pass a law that says the government is required to pilot this in two places, and if it works, move it to four places. And if it, you know, it's every time it works, make double the impact, and every time it doesn't work, have the impact, and go. Like, do you think how many startups we could solve, we could create doing that? I bet it would be massive. And so don't tell me we're serious about generating, spending money on economic development if we're not doing those kinds of programs. I call BS. How? All right. Ace. Yes, yes, exactly. This is yeah, can we come to our participant and then in the meantime get a microphone on the other side? Now we're going, now we got, got it going. Yes, uh, exactly. We're having so really serious. So thank you for coming today, Eric. Really appreciate the insight. So two questions. First question is in terms of the greatest um, technology company, two thousand seventeen, for some reason they seem to come from America in particular. Is it particularly access to capital? I wouldn't say it's access to talent because there's intelligent people globally. So why is it that America is so much more better at producing um, the Facebooks, the Google, Uber, etc.? And also, uh, just a thought, your insight on devaluations. And is Uber really a startup with $10 billion of funding? You know? So that's it. Thank you. Are you suggesting that Americans are not smarter than everybody else? How dare, how dare you suggest such a thing? My God, can you believe this guy? <laughs> yes, uh, no, I certainly do not, do not believe it is because of some intrinsic, you know, uh, psychological power and, and whatever. Like, all, uh, people have a lot of just-so stories about why things are the way they are. And look, I'm sure if the weather was horrible in, in America, they would say that the cold winters are what drive our ingenuity or whatever. And if, you know, if the, if the weather was warm, or whatever it is, people will, will be happy to seize on that as a cultural characteristic. When I travel around the world, everyone has like, the most hilarious pet theories about why Americans are better at what we do than they are. Uh, and I don't believe that that really has anything to do with anything. Uh, first of all, America is not good at technology entrepreneurship in particular. Silicon Valley is really good at it. We just happen to be in America. You know, Alabama is not as good. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> Although, if you've been following the news, we've got some serious problems in Alabama. Uh, we have a number of startup hubs in the country that you know, are kind of catching up to Silicon, to, to Silicon Valley. And because of Silicon Valley's success, we've had some policy choices that we made that have been pretty good. So like, we do have really good, like, even national policies around tax treatment for, um, for capital gains and carried interest. Uh, we have you know, the proper kind of bankruptcy protections for entrepreneurs that are not true in every country. So like we have some, there are some policy and legal framework advantages that we have. But there's actually really good research on what makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley. And it's none of the stuff people talk about. So there's a woman named Annalise Saxinian uh, who wrote a terrific book years ago called Regional Advantage where she studied how come Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley and not Boston's Route 128 corridor that had the huge head start after World War II uh, in the development. And I won't get into the whole thesis. It's, you know, there's a history of the, if you're interested in the history of the technology industry, you should pay attention to this. Uh, there's a number of factors that contributed to Silicon Valley uh, becoming dominant, and they are all like fuzzy, soft factors. You know, it has to do with uh, the information networks and flow of information. It has to do with California having really pro-labor 
uh, non-compete agreements so that you wouldn't get sued if you took knowledge out of your um, uh, and, and, and good intellectual property. That's just like some very basic stuff about how the culture of the place grew up. And that attracted venture capital and, and allowed the formation of venture capital industry to be headquartered there. It's not like the people in San Francisco were already super rich. and that, like, The money that we invest in Silicon Valley doesn't come from Silicon Valley. It comes from all over. So, so that's a well-documented a well uh, and relatively replicable story. It's that you get this flywheel going of talent and capital and, uh, and you reinvest. And you know, Brad Feld has a wonderful book called Startup Communities that's about you know, how they built uh, the startup hub in Boulder, Colorado, which for all intents and purposes is the middle of nowhere. Uh, but they were able to do it, so it was a lovely place to live. People wanted to be there. They made it attractive. Paul Graham has a funny essay about how he was being asked, how do you, how do you get this going in your city? And he's like, well, how many food trucks do you have? <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? He's like, there's no food trucks. How, why engineers are not going to want to live here? So, right, and I mean, I, I, there was a, there's so, we, like, we know this. We actually kind of know what to do here. It's just not very appetizing for these government programs that want to do big, 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 Stuff and I forgot the second question because I was going on and on. Valuation. Oh, valuations! Yeah, our valuations preposterous. Well, first of all, <laughs> let's understand where startup valuations come from. This is a very common misconception. Uh, people see a company like Uber or Facebook or whatever that has a valuation dramatically out of proportion to any of its revenue, and they say that can't be right. But actually, it's quite rational in most cases. If I offered you a lottery ticket that had a 1% chance of paying out $100 billion. What's that worth to you right now? It's roughly $1 billion. That's like, that's now on my finance. We're like, well, what about net present value in the time? I, I, it's not exactly $1 billion, but it's not nothing. It's real. So, so part of the valuation of a startup is its asset value, right? The networks it has, the customers, the uh, revenue that it makes, the networks of suppliers and distributors and whatever, the asset value of the company. And part of what makes it valuable is the probability-weighted distribution of future outcomes, the lottery ticket component of the valuation. The reason why experimentation that creates really dramatic changes in startup valuations is because when we get customers and we build minimum viable products and we start to scale, we're always having a double win we're simultaneously increasing the asset value and also revealing something about the probability and magnitude of future success. So the outsized valuations are driven by a probabilistic analysis of what we think might happen in the future. So unless you have access to that, that probability data, you can't assess if the valuation is fair or unfair. Because a Ponzi scheme also will look just the same from the outside. You have to know if the thing actually creates value, and we don't have transparency uh, of valuations and where those valuations are like. Now, our grandparents learned this lesson the hard way. And I grew up, my, my grandparents were victims of the Depression and the Holocaust, and so I, you know, a lot of things happening in the world right now are bizarrely familiar to me from the stories they used to tell me. And one of the lessons they learned the hard way is if you have unregulated, infinite amounts of unregulated money chasing hyper-growth opportunities, bad stuff happens. So please don't do that. And we've just like totally blithely been like, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine this time because human nature is substantially improved. 
since 1930. I, it's like, I'm not sure exactly even what the theory is. So we had this like massive liquidity crisis where companies that in a previous era would have been public companies are staying private and they're able to be, raise unlimited amounts of private capital. Uh, you know, all the companies that you named, that's, that's a huge part of the issue. So we don't have the transparency we need to know what's going on. You think about the scandals that have erupted in some of those companies in a previous generation, all of those scandals would have been uncovered. Forget, they would have been uncovered in the IPO. They would have been uncovered during IPO prep and, the, and would have been resolved much sooner. In the US, we're having a huge debate now about Russian influence on our platforms and, and, uh, and in the election, it's a huge controversy. And it's going to be a huge problem for Silicon Valley because when you don't allow the American public to invest in growth companies, who fills in the gap? At first, it was venture capital and private equity firms, but the rounds are so large. Who can make these investments? We, Silicon Valley is awash in petrostate dollars. Facebook was financed, it turns out, by a Kremlin strategic investment fund. The guy who made the investment, Mark Zuckerberg, got married at his house. And now we're going to pretend that Facebook couldn't possibly have known that they, the Russians would have an interest in using Facebook for something. We're the smartest people in the world because we're much smarter than everybody else. But we couldn't possibly have known. Well, somebody knew. Somebody runs that Kremlin strategic investment fund, and they thought this was a pretty good idea. So it's just, I have no idea if there was some kind of nefarious corruption, but just the optics of it are horrendous. So there's all this bizarre cascading effects of the liquidity crisis that we don't address we're all going to regret it. So I don't know, I don't know if what, the, what the equivalent UK version of these scandals are, if you have them yet. But if you follow our footsteps, you too can have <laughs> these same problems. So we, we, uh, this is a serious problem, yeah. Thank you for that question. So we, had, we have a... Um, hi. Um, yeah. Hi, my name is Theo. Um, with the microphone. Let me, can we just come back to the first uh, questions about immigrations? I was, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm from Vietnam. I was educated in the U.S. and I lived in the U.S. more than 10 years until they decided to kick me out when the Department of Labor denied my firm, which is a U.S. financial institution uh, green card application. So now I'm here. Um, and I have a group of friends in London uh, or in Europe in general who call themselves the American Rejects. There are like at least 20 or 30 of us who are Just PhD, master, you know, graduate from all the U.S. institutions that you can name. But come back to my question. So um, <laughs> the first question that I have is um, it seems like the startup way that you are promoting seems to be very effective. Um, have you, ha have you um, consulted for big banks? And one of the biggest problems that are facing big banks right now is all the compliance issues that they have to face mm -hmm. everywhere in the world. So applying your methodology, how would you advise a big bank to go about challenging this humongous task that they have to do? Absolutely. So that's that's one question. Oh, and the second one, question, sorry. sorry. <laughs> All right. The first one is a technical question. So the second question is about culture. Yes. Um, so you mentioned about the startup culture and how to you change you know, the corporations by in introducing the startup co culture. Yeah. There are a lot of great things about startup culture. But recently, startup culture has been called out for being not inclusive, for being discriminative, for being sexist, for being all these uh, points. So how do you think the startup culture need to evolve and grow up and um, maybe change a little bit uh, or a lot um, to, um, to adapt to these challenges? Because it is a challenge when people who build AI and build our future don't really like to talk to other people and don't really know how to respect other people in general. Ooh, there's some questions. <laughs> 
As soon as you start allowing the voices from the upper deck to, to ask you questions, it's, you know, it's very challenging. These were, these, everyone down here was really easy. And, I don't know. I feel like maybe we have reverse discrimination against the lower decks. And I'm, yeah. No, thank you for that. Seriously, in all seriousness, those are really good questions. So let me take them in, in easy to hard order so I can ramp myself up. So let's start with the uh, regulated banks. That's easy. Uh, yes, I have done it quite a bit. Um, every financial services company you can name is under tremendous pressure to change. And the regulatory regime that we put in place after the Great Recession has had all kinds of bizarro uh, unintended consequences. Uh, a lot of, I, one of the, a CEO of one of these companies said to me recently, uh, we, I think and after the crisis, we built a world-class legal and compliance function in our company. I'm not sure that's actually a good thing. <laughs> because the best way to reduce liability is to never do anything. So you actually create a financial incentive for these gatekeepers to make sure nobody ever does anything in the company, and then that's actually not a good way to seek out new sources of growth. Um, there's a great story in the book uh, about Citi's D10X program. So you can just see one example of a highly regulated financial institution. Uh, in the Lean Startup, there's a story about Wealthfront, which is now one of the really big robo-advisor uh, asset managers, FINRA-regulated, you know, again, highly regulated financial services company. They were practicing continuous deployment in the early days, and uh, I remember people would say, gosh, it seems very risky to allow, you know, an individual engineer could push a change to production like in 15 minutes. They would actually do live customer service support. The engineers would take the phone call. The person would say, I think there's something wrong with my account settings page, and they'd pull it up there, and they'd, they'd say, oh, yeah, I see the problem. Hold on one second. They'd pull up the code, find the bug, fix it, hit deploy, and be like, say, refresh your page. You see the fix? Great. We're done. Like, that level of customer. And people are like, you can't do that in financial services. And their point of view was, if something's important enough that it's regulatorily um, mandated that we do it, and you're going to have human beings certify that it still works, human beings are animals that make mistakes. So we don't want that. Only computers have the reliability necessary to make sure that the system still works and is still in compliance. So build in automated testing from the beginning. So I could tell you stories like that all day long. Um, that's an industry that's under, under the pressure to, uh, uh, to, to evolve, and it's very important. Uh, we also see that a lot with, in most organizations, compliance is the enemy of product. They fight with each other. They hate each other's guts. So I'll just tell you a story. This is a, this is a story that, that is wild to me. This is in the healthcare domain, but you can translate to financial services. Healthcare company uh, building a new high science product that is going to be sold to hospitals. And the team was having a really hard time with the compliance function. There was this one guy in particular who was like Mr. Scold, didn't like them, always was saying no, you know, very grumpy person. And they were fighting and fighting and fighting. And we said, listen, if you want to, you know, I was trying to help them as a Lean Startup coach. If you want to adopt Lean Startup, you've got to build a cross-functional team. And they said, well, we have a cross-functional team. We've got engineering and marketing and IT. It's like, yeah, but this is a legally regulated business. You've got to have a lawyer or a compliance person on your team full time. They're like, really? Do I have to? It's like, yes, you have to. So they, you know, requested that the person be, somebody be transferred to their team. Of course, the request was denied. We don't have an extra person to spare. I was like, guys, you have to pay this person's salary out of your budget. That's heresy. You're going to pay a lawyer out of the product budget? How dare you suggest such a thing? I said, look, you have to do it. Just we made him do it. You can see where this story is going, right? Who got assigned to be on this project? But Mr. Scold himself, who hates their guts. So I was like, look, bring them out for a workshop in San Francisco. And so the team comes out to San Francisco. They bring the compliance person with them. He is not having a good time. Right, this is not his favorite thing to be doing. Why am I at the stupid workshop to listen to the no, 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 so we're several hours into the workshop, and he, at a certain point, he's like, he pauses for a second. He's like, excuse me, I have a question. 
are you telling me that I'm going to be on this team from the start? So when they design these ridiculously bad experiments, I'm going to have a chance to weigh in from the beginning? Yeah. Interesting. Okay, keep going with the workshop. Breakout time. So when we sit down to the breakout table, we're brainstorming different MVPs of what we could do, and he's not saying anything. One of the engineers has an idea for an MVP that we could do, and he's describing how it would work. And one of the other engineers is like, oh, shoot, we can't do that. Everybody knows that it's illegal to pre-sell a medical device that doesn't have regulatory approval. It's like a recurring issue in healthcare and in financial services. And Mr. Scold says, excuse me, does it strike you as kind of characteristic of the behavior of the United States federal government to publish regulations that are one sentence long? No, now that you mention it, that doesn't seem like their MO. He's like, no, there is no regulation that says you cannot pre-sell a medical device. There is a 1,000-page regulation that is, you know, item, federal register item number, blah, 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 blah. Have any of you read this regulation? <laughs> no, of course you haven't. Well, guess what? I have, and did you know? Then on page 874, <laughs> paragraph 3, sub-bullet A, there is an exception to that rule. And the MVP you just described is perfectly legal. You should have seen the jaws hit the floor on this team. This guy is helping us for some reason. And there was total silence in the team, and someone said, are there any other exceptions? <laughs> And he's like, step into my office. As a matter of fact, there are. And did you know, as he starts going off on the 12 different ways, and it was like amazing. This company had been convinced for years that this regulation meant they could never do any innovation or test anything, and now they're off to the races. All they had to do was build a cross-functional team. So question one answered. Immigration question, have I answered that to your satisfaction already? You just, you just agree with me? I mean, it's, it's a point of national humiliation that you are not in the state. Yeah, thank you. I mean, well, look. Great, great. Okay. And then it was banks. Wait, wait, if Brexit happens, are you going to have to move again? <laughs> Listen, this is horrible. Look, as a citizen of the world, I'm very happy to hear that entrepreneurship can flourish anywhere, and that's great. As a United States citizen, this is pissing me off. You know, like that's, that is terrible. So, you know, our loss is your gain. Don't make the same mistake we did, please. Are you ready to? <laughs> now, but now the hard question. I'm getting there. I'm working my way to it. All right, look. Nothing I write about at all generates the level of hate mail I get when I try to wade into the meritocracy debate. So, you know, I just like can't tell you the number of white dudes that just flame the hell out of me every time I open my mouth on the subject. Um, but I think it's important to, to talk about, so I actually do appreciate the question. I think that the idea that these biases are somehow inherent to the technology industry or startup culture is ridiculous. Um, that's an argument, I think, that, uh, um, that bigots make because they think that somehow the talent to do this kind of work is only for certain special people. I just. You know, I, I don't know if you know, there's a book that just came out uh, called The Woman Who, the Woman Who Smashed Codes, The Girl Who Smashed Codes, it's called, about uh, the hidden, uh, per there's a woman who was part of the founding of modern cryptography in the United States. She and her husband basically founded the NSA, and if you know, like, the Alan Turing enigma cracking story, the whole thing, they had to do that kind of stuff on paper and pencil, and she cracked enigma by hand while Alan Turing was doing it uh, uh, by computer. And if you have any idea how enigma works, you can just imagine how insanely uh, gifted this person is. Anyway, I was watching on the plane over, I finished the book, and then I was watching the movie Wonder Woman. 
on the way over here uh, on the plane. And I hadn't seen it. I heard it was great. I hadn't, I hadn't seen it before. And it was just funny how the unrealism of the movie was really bothering me. For some reason, the fact that she could like punch a building and it explodes didn't bother me. What bothers me is this movie is set in the same time period as Elizabeth Friedman's uh, story. And she does all this incredible stuff. And there's all these men standing around. And they're all fine with it. And nobody, they're just like, oh, great. She, yeah, sure, she can tell us what to do. It's like, it's like totally fine. You're like, that is not realistic. And what was driving me crazy is that we actually know exactly what would happen if Wonder Woman, in fact, had been alive at that time. Because she actually was alive at that time. And she founded modern cryptography. And she was 100% written out of the history. And therefore, we have this belief that only men can do this kind of mathematical work. And it's like, that's complete bullshit. So we have like, allowed these misconceptions to become foundational in our industry. And it should, we should consider it an embarrassment. And we have to do something about it. I think a big part of the problem stems from the idea that meritocracy is a binary category. You either are a meritocracy or you're not, which is silly. Of course, you can always be more or less meritocratic. And so the question we have to ask in our organizations is, have we done everything possible to be as meritocratic as we can? And the answer is so clearly no, it's a joke. The selection procedures that we use to decide who gets venture capital, to who gets hired and who gets promoted, every one of those procedures has been studied in the lab and found horrifically wanting and subject to unconscious bias of every kind. So if we haven't even take the, taken the elementary steps to eliminate bias, and then we get the super homogeneous result, like, it's laughable to me that we would call that a meritocracy. And to say that that's the best we can do, it's like if we were still using rotary phones and just being like, well, it works fine enough, so I guess there's, there's nothing better we can do. Like, that would be considered ridiculous. So I look forward to a day, and I think thank, and we're very lucky to have people finally standing up and saying what needs to happen here, uh, where the industry will be reformed and that you know, we won't have that kind of joke. And, and people who claim to be a meritocracy but they haven't done the elementary things will be laughed out of the business. I, I have tried to experiment with this myself in my own work. You know, we, we do a Lean Startup Conference every year. And the first few years we did it, it was all people. I, I picked the speakers myself. It was all people I knew, because I wanted to put people on stage who I could vouch that the story they were telling was true. So of course, it was all people that looked just like me, shockingly. And I was, I was really disturbed about it, and we decided to do better. And what's so funny about this argument is when you hear people talk, when I get flamed about this, the flame always goes like this. You're suggesting that, my, that our selection process, the Mario Accelerator or whatever, is biased. But what evidence do you have that it's biased? And I'm like, well, it's been studied in the lab and found to be biased. Like, well, they, have they studied my incubator in particular? No, they haven't. So it's not, so, and listen, our pipeline looks just like our admit. So, so women and minorities don't apply to our program, so we can't be biased. And I'm like, if you're a minor, in a minority group, you'd have to be an idiot to apply to a racist program. <laughs> so yeah, they don't, they, don't apply, they, don't, they don't exist? No, they don't apply to your program because applying to a program is not free. It takes time and energy. We've already been talking about that. Plus, the psychic experience of being rejected is not that, that fun. So if you see a program that has only white dudes in it that are 25 years old from Stanford, and you don't look the part, and you don't apply, that's actually a totally normal thing to do. So this is actually, I think this is actually good news. The good news is that this is an area where the symbolic is real. If you make symbolic changes to convince people that you have a fair selection process, it will change who applies. We did that at the conference. We made a big deal one year that we were going to do blind review, and we changed the language we used in our call for proposals. If you don't know how to do the language, there's a startup called Text.io that will do it for you with machine learning. Uh, and we made some very, very elementary uh, changes. And that first year, we were 50-50 male-female speakers. Uh, the second year, we were a majority people of color or women. It was like, 
And we've been doing that conference now seven years since then, and people still, an industry conference in Silicon Valley are still all white dudes. I'm like, we have a pipeline problem that people don't exist. So like, this whole thing is just ridiculous. And it's funny as people are like, well, good job, you did that. I'm like, don't say good job to me. All I did was read a bunch of essays that have been written by women and do what they say. So like, <laughs> let's just all just do what they say, and then we'll be fine. Like, we don't need to have people like me be rewarded for doing something great here. So like, enough with the, this is just, anyway. I got enough flame wars just from that, so I hope that's helpful. I'm gonna helpful. take one last brief question, and I'm gonna reassure everyone that at the LSE we randomly select <laughs> who gets the last question. Um, can I get the person right here at the front with the scarf to give us the last no question pressure. of today? No pressure for this question, but it better be really good. Hello, uh, I'm a student here at LSE, the local economic development master. But before that, I used to work in one uh, Gov innovation lab uh, in the city of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And there were people uh, wearing uh, red pants there. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, well, you mentioned that the patterns of management that you identified it and big corporations and uh, the, the ways that are related to the startup way, mm -hmm. you also find some uh, findings in the government. So yeah. I wanted to ask you what were, the, what were the differences between these big corporations in changing their culture yeah. and uh, when you compare them to government? You know, for all the prejudice we have that the private sector knows everything and the public sector is dysfunctional, the differences are quite minor, actually. and, and uh, I'll tell you a funny story. It's like, the, what's different about these projects is not the people that are in them, but the flavor of the kind of things that they work on are really different. So uh, in the United States, you can read in the book about the meltdown of healthcare.gov, everyone remembers that. The team that did the healthcare.gov rescue were a bunch of lean startup pioneers in the federal government. And after they did the rescue, they became heroes of the federal bureaucracy and they got the chance to build these new agencies, including the United States Digital Service that's based on an agency you have here in the UK. And they drove a really profound transformation in the organization. And a, and a couple years later, you know, whenever I would be in Washington, D.C., I would check in with them to kind of just hear how it was going. And I, I came to the, to the USDS uh, office in the White House and they were just you know, telling me updates of different projects. And finally, at some point, someone says, tell them about the cave. And I'm like, I'm sorry, the what? And they're like, oh, yeah, there's people doing work in a cave. And, and I was like, what an interesting metaphor for the, you know, I was like, it's like Plato's cave. You mean like a metaphor for the darkness of being in the public? Like, no, 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 you're not listening to me. <laughs> this is a physical cave. I'm, like, I'm not following you. And they're like, listen, you know the immigration service in the United States, the same geniuses who rejected this application. Uh, until very recently, the entire process was 100% paper-based. And did you know that paper, when accumulated in large volumes, is quite dense? And so once you get to a sufficient amount of paper that you want to store somewhere, standard office buildings are not structurally sound to do it. They have to be specially reinforced. And uh, one of the regional offices of the USCIS figured that it would be a lot easier, structurally speaking, to just build the processing center into a cave for structural support reasons, and so the processing was being done in an actual cave. <laughs> the United States federal government, in all its wisdom, uh, you know, some years ago, decided that we should hire an IT contractor to fix this problem and make everything digital. I won't name the contractor, but they uh, did it, gave a, a bid to this contractor that spent, if I remember right, 10 years and $1 billion to produce a new IT system, waterfall style, that at the end, this is actually quite an accomplishment if you think about it,
the new IT system was slower than the paper-based system. <laughs> so that was the state of the art when US Digital Service got involved. And they were like, we just did the standard playbook. We immediately created a cross-functional team of, of designers, uh, engineers, and actual examiners. We physically went to the cave and did the development there with them in parallel. We showed them prototypes constantly. If I remember right, within four months, they had the first version of the software running, and they had something like 10% of applications going through it right away. Within, within a year or two, they had mostly gotten rid of the paper-based system. It was like the S-curve on this thing was just like you would expect uh, with a startup. It was quite, quite remarkable. And uh, I mean, I can tell you story after story about that. There's a, one of the craziest things that I would never have predicted when I started doing Lean Startup. There is a huge Lean Startup uh, initiative within the national security intelligence communities in the US and in the UK, by the way. I got to get to visit with the UK security services. Fascinating, uh, but I don't know that I can really talk that much about it. I'm just realizing. <laughs> anyway, just they're, they're, they have done great work uh, in these areas. And one of the stories I finally got permission to tell in the book, uh, uh, the NSA is a lean startup, have a lean start program at the National Security Agency, the same one that Elizabeth Friedman helped, helped start. And I got permission to tell a story. You can imagine the secrecy issues complicated. This is a program that involves the computer system that generates the United States nuclear codes. So this is like a very solemn project. And you don't think about this, of course, but like we know that we live in a world where there's nuclear weapons. It's a very important thing that we have clear lines of authority of who, has, who can launch those weapons and that those lines of authority not be co-opted by some third party because God forbid. So the level of security that this computer system is held under is unbelievable. I've never seen it, obviously. Uh, but they have a physical space called the no-loan zone, which is the room that the actual computer sits in and is like isolated from the outside world by every conceivable mechanism. It's called the no-loan zone because no single human being is ever allowed to be in this room alone for any period of time. So every day, think about this, codes have to be changed periodically, obviously. So somebody has to generate the codes. Two people sit in this room all day long watching the computer to make sure it's not tampered with while it does its you know, crazy thing to generate the codes that can't be tampered with and that they, they work shifts in this room and they just have to sit there. Can you imagine what you have to think about while you're sitting there watching the nuclear codes be generated? Like what a horrible and terrifying, <laughs> I mean just like the, the humanity of the situation like I always find very moving. So anyway, this team, in the NSA, they have a series of Lean Startup projects. Most of them I can't talk about, but this one, you know, it's actually not that big of a deal. It does not compromise national security in any way for you to know this. They had an idea that they could um, build the equivalent of a KVM switch that would be highly secure so that the two people could go into the room, initiate the process, lock down the computer system so no one could tamper with it, and then they could leave and come back and unlock it and get the codes at the end. So from a, like, a user experience point of view of having this, like, unbelievable responsibility, it's much more humane. That is not a big enough and important enough problem normally for anyone to bother solving it. And the big theme of the startup way is that we want to more democratically and more broadly apply startup problem solving to a wider range of problems than we currently think are worth the time to do. So this is a problem and you can, one of the things I think is really funny as I travel around, I often meet people who say, gosh, I would love to do Lean Startup, but my organization is too highly regulated uh, our application is mission critical, you know, or our supply chain is too difficult to do this. And I'm like, 
compared to the National Security Agency? I'm going to guess not more regulated. I'm going to guess not more mission critical than the nuclear codes. <laughs> and can you imagine the supply chain issues? Like if you work at the NSA and you want to go buy a USB cable, you can't just walk to the local store. Like, you know, it has to, we have to make sure that there, you know, no foreign intelligence service is inserted. Like, it's like very complicated. So they built a program to be able to do these lightweight experiments, and they were able to do this new uh, version of the no-loan zone in, in like four months when it previously would have taken years. And since it would have taken years before, they wouldn't have bothered doing it. So yeah, I have found the, the government uh, innovators, including uh, folks here at MI5 and GCHQ, um, every bit as innovative, every bit as dedicated to the mission, if not more so, than anyone you'd meet in the private sector. And it's actually been really a thrill for me to get to see the work that they do uh, flourish using these ideas, because of course, it really it makes a huge difference to the policy outcomes that the government can drive anyway. So, so it's, it's been really terrific. So yeah, thanks for asking that question. Um, as I'm, I'm sure we could stay here for more <laughs> time delighted. discussing, but we'll come to the end of our meeting. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have Eric share his insight, his insight you, with you. all of us. Um, he's going to kindly stay for 10 minutes to sign any copies if you brought your copy with you of the Start of Way. There are copies available for purchase outside, which are, of course, the same copies as you can find with your preferred vendor. It's completely <laughs> up to you. But please join me in thanking Eric for joining us today.